0: Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. We'll be starting the book of Acts today. This is an exciting book. It is a book about the history of the church, and it's a book in the Bible that, quite frankly, doesn't end. In Acts chapter 28, we learn of where Paul was at at that time, and then the book just ends. Why? Because it continues to this day. We are still a part of the book of Acts. The church is still happening today, it's still growing today, and amazing things are still going on in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we'll learn more about that as we embark on this study here today. We brought our study last week of Nehemiah to an end. And sadly, the end of Nehemiah was a sharp contrast from the revival that we had seen take place in the middle of that book. We saw the same zeal and passion on the part of Nehemiah. He was still the same Nehemiah. He was ready to take care of business. He was ready to lead the people back to God and to make sure they were in right standing with God, that they had an appropriate focus on the word of God. But we did, unfortunately, see how quickly those Nehemiah had left behind in Jerusalem, how quickly they turned back to their former ways, despite the confident and passionate covenants that they had made with God. It didn't matter the passionate commitments that they had made during the time of the emotional high, the mountaintop experience that they had when, when they finished the wall and saw this great victory take place in the name of God. What mattered was their commitment, their discipline during the time of the emotional low, during the time of the valley when things weren't exciting. And we saw how the people had so quickly turned away. It's a lesson to all of us yet still today that we must always be on our guard against the distractions and the deception of the enemy. As Christians, we cannot rely on inspirational and emotional highs to carry us through in our walk with the Lord. We need to develop root of faith such that we can maintain our walk with God even in those spiritual droughts. Satan entices our flesh to turn away from truth, just as he did with the Israelites time and again. Yet something more important than simply Being aware of such attacks, being aware of of what the enemy tries to do, we need to be on guard, we need to be aware, but we need to understand that no amount of legalistic routine, a commitment on our part, our word, saying we're going to do this, none of those things can ensure a faithful walk with God. It requires something much greater, something much powerful. It requires the gift of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit working within us. There's a distinct difference for us today, Christians who are under a new covenant, Christians who are experiencing now what the word of God and what God himself has promised to us through the words of Jesus, this promise of the Holy Spirit. And so as we turn our attention to a new book, to the New Testament, we embark on a a history of the early Christian church. We embark on an account of the disciples, the apostles, how God used them to establish doctrine within the church, and most importantly, to call attention to that promise of the Holy Spirit and how it indwells us, how it equips us, how it comes upon us to be victorious, not only in our walks with Jesus Christ, but in our mission to God and make disciples of Christ. There's an incredible added dynamic with the power of the Holy Spirit. And today as we enter into the book of Acts, or as often is referred to as the Acts of the Apostles, We'll have an account of the apostles and their involvement in the growth of the early church. And so before we go any further, if you would just agree with me in prayer here this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that this morning we would already through our time of worship, Lord, have our attention drawn to you. That there would be some here that have have maybe already started to lay aside the cares of the world, the cares of the day and focus their attention on you that they might hear from you through the power of your spirit here this morning. Lord, I have no doubt that each and every one of us has had our challenges this week. And we may be thinking in our minds this week, it's been ongoing for so long, but we're here this morning. We're here in this sanctuary, this place of rest, Lord, that we could, through the power of your Spirit, hear from you this morning to be equipped, to be encouraged, to be blessed, to be strengthened in our walks with you. And as we go to the book of Acts, Lord, I I pray that you would just prepare our hearts to receive it. Lord, the same way that we need to be ready and willing to receive the equipping of the Spirit, we need to do the same as we hear the Word, Lord, to be open vessels for it. Father, bless our time here this morning. May it be pleasing to you, Lord. May the the name of Jesus Christ be exalted. May the word be exalted here this morning. May you be pleased by all that goes on here. But, But Father, may lives and hearts be transformed here today. That is our goal. That in the name of Jesus Christ, individuals would find salvation in you. That they would find equipping in you and your spirit, Lord. Such that we could go out and accomplish your plan and purpose in our lives and in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, again, the book of Acts, if you want to turn there to chapter 1, verse 1, gives us an account of the apostles and their involvement in the growth of the early church. Now, the apostles in general, that term apostles, are referenced 23 times throughout the book. But the majority of the focus we'll find is on Peter and really the first half of Acts and then Paul in the second. Now, having said that, while the apostles may have some good billing in this book, they may get some good attention, and rightfully so, because we can look at these early church fathers and and get insight into what they did and how they did it. It's often been stated that a proper title for this book would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Fifty-nine times the Holy Spirit is mentioned, and we know that none of the work we will read about could have been accomplished without the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer once said, of the Holy Spirit, and I quote, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. You see, that's a sobering quote, one that I would unfortunately be forced to agree with in many cases is that so much today, so much of the church is operating without the equipping and the power of the Holy Spirit. The apostles, they were empowered, they were endued, they were equipped, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The dunamis or dynamic power of the Holy Spirit, and it changed the world. They were world changers. Not just changers, but the, the word says that they turned it upside down. We'll read later on, In Acts 17, verse 6, this is what was said about them, that they were viewed as the ones who had turned the world upside down. They had changed everything. They had changed everyone's understanding of what it meant to be a follower of the one true God. They had power, the power of the Holy Spirit. Sadly, today, too many churches are too engrossed within the program and the routine and not led of the Holy Spirit. So let's talk then about the context of the book. Of course, this is, we're just kicking this off, right? So we've got to do a little bit of understanding uh, of the book of Acts. We're, what's going on here? Who's the author? What's happening? And so as we consider, first and foremost, the author or, or the writer, as I should say, is in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, we read of the writer's reference to a former account that was made addressing an individual named Theophilus. And so it's that, it's that initial statement there that gives us insight into who it is that's writing this book. We know that two books earlier in the New Testament, we have the Gospel of Luke, which was written to the most excellent Theophilus. And so these two books seem to connect, and this gives us our understanding of of who penned this particular book. There's consistency between the two books. In fact, some believe that they could be one consistent work. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts at one point was intended to be put together as one big book. And that perhaps is a part of our canonization process as we put the books into the Bible, into the New Testament, and ordered them accordingly that we separated those two works. In either case, we see evidence in both writings that connect the two together. Namely, this first particular piece where Luke, in the beginning of Acts, is referencing his Gospel that he had penned, and said, in the previous work, Theophilus, this is what I began to write to you about. And now I'm going to continue that work and continue to explain to you what is happening in the church. Now, Luke was a different apostle than the others. He was very well educated, a physician, and he had a different style. There's 312 words that Luke uses in the gospel of Luke specifically that we don't see anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's not only because of his education, but that Luke was also a Greek. He's the only Gentile to have the privilege of placing Scripture in the canon. So that's unique. As we read about Luke, we need to understand that he's the only Gentile that we have, that we have his work within the New Testament. And so it is very different. His perspective is very different, yet it's consistent with all of the other writings from cover to cover. We just get to see it through his eyes. And so we have two New Testament books that are ascribed to Luke. The Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. And so Luke is writing of the early church and the work that was accomplished by the empowering of the apostles with the Holy Spirit. It's actually how he ends his Gospel and begins this book. There is a great deal of consistency between the end of the Gospel of Luke and the beginning of Acts. It ties it together well, but it also reinforces the importance of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So then who is this Theophilus whom he is writing to? Now of course there's debate amongst who it is. This is the thing that gets Bible scholars excited. Right? Well, something to debate, right? Or prove each other, who's right, who's wrong. Now the name itself, Theophilus, means lover of God. A oh, pretty cool name. Right? Theo, God, Philus, or Phileo, love. Now some argue that this is just a general name for a group of people, Christians. Those who love God, the lovers of God. And it's Luke who is addressing them in this anonymity in order to protect them from persecution, to make it general in nature. Some say that Luke is protecting himself by not including his name and authorship in the book. You know, there could be some truth to that. He would be no different than the other uh, writers of the Gospels, and that none of them specifically made claim to who they were in their writings. We see that more specifically with Paul as he wrote his letters, which would have been more typical of writing a letter that you would explain who you were, who they were getting this letter from. And furthermore, because there were so many who tried to lead people astray, Paul tried to make it his aim to ensure that people knew who he was by laying out his credentials. But we don't see Luke do that. He doesn't specifically state, this is Luke, and I'm writing to you who this person is. But it stands to reason, based on the fact that Luke refers to, specifically in the Gospel of Luke, the most excellent Theophilus, that this is an actual person and is someone of great importance. An official, this term most excellent would have suggested that it was an official, a senator, a governor, someone of royal descent, someone of great importance, or at the very least, a wealthy individual. Now, it could be that Luke was actually a slave to this particular person. Then in this time, it required most often a wealthy benefactor to be able to send someone to school to get that much education, particularly to become a physician. And in this time, wealthy individuals were known to have essentially purchased their own personal doctor. And so many believe that Luke was potentially owned by this most excellent Theophilus. Now, at this point, if this was the case, they would have shared a common salvation. It would have been an exciting thing to see how Luke had, had been successful potentially in leading this person to Jesus Christ. And that he now shared a common faith. And that he was freed to be able to go out and, and, and preach the gospel and go on the journeys with Paul. We'll see in the beginning of Acts through the first half that Luke refers to things in the singular But then in the latter half, when Paul enters in, he begins to refer to things as we and us. Those words help us to understand that he's probably at that point now out with Paul, on the journeys with Paul. Now, I believe that Theophilus was likely an actual person, that he probably had some great influence That he was maybe connected to Rome in some way and perhaps even during Paul's imprisonment he was able to write to Theophilus to try and educate him on uh, the validity of Christianity to help provide support to in some way defend Paul. He may have been advocating for Paul who was facing persecution at that point, but we don't ultimately know for sure. Now the setting for Acts initially is Jerusalem, but it will extend to all Judea. Samaria, Macedonia, Rome, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, because that's what the Great Commission requires. So this is the beginning of the church. And as I mentioned before, Acts really never comes to a close. It only continues through the church even still today. And the cool thing is that God has ordained that man be used as his instrument to accomplish his will on the earth. That's the beauty of Acts, is as we see the history of the early church and see it unfold, we can still be a part of this work that's happening. Now he can, he does, and he will use his angels to accomplish his will. We'll see that in, in Revelation. We'll be starting that in a couple of weeks on Wednesday nights. But today he continues to primarily use mankind as his instrument, his way to bring about his plan and purpose on this earth. Privilege that most of us would prefer not to really enjoy. I mean, ministry's hard. Like the prophets of old, when we're called to, to a particular work of the Lord, our response is often, no, Lord, please, not that. Don't, don't expect that of me, please. Who am I? Maybe there's a more humble approach to who am I? Who am I to be able to, to do this? I think it was Spurgeon who often talked about, you know, at this particular time when you teach within the church, you'd take multiple steps up to a large you know, platform overlooking the entire congregation. And he used to comment on the fact that when we'd get to that bottom step. He'd look up and he'd say, please, just stop it here. Don't make me go up there. Don't make me go up there. Please, not me. But yet he chooses us, he uses us, and if we're willing, it's a glorious privilege and calling. But like the quote I read earlier from A.W. Tozer, much of the work. We are continuing today in the church is absent of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And that's sad. We so desperately need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit today, each and every day. To be spirit-led is so critical, but we're often so focused on what some would call the horizontal within the church and not the vertical that we miss tapping into the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit in exchange for, as I mentioned, program and routine. I can be guilty of that. I can be guilty of, 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 hey, things have to happen a certain way, a certain time. Now, it's good to have order. We serve a God of order. Right? But we also need to be flexible and in tune with the Holy Spirit and how he leads. And we've been given a promise, a promise of the Holy Spirit. And we need to put it to use, Christian And so let's look first, chapter 24, the very end of the gospel of Luke, just to see how he ends the gospel and where we then pick up again in Acts chapter 1. So Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Praise God. That's a glorious gift. When God opens your understanding that you might understand, and that happens when you're born again. I want you to understand that today. You have, if you are born again, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have had your understanding opened through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You are given the ability to understand Scripture. Now, it doesn't mean that there doesn't still need to be effort on your part to try and read and to learn and to grow. Unlike someone who is unsaved and reads through it and says, man, there's just so much of this that just doesn't make any sense to me. It's like I'm just just reading and reading and I don't get any of it. That when you get saved, God's going to start to give you an understanding of his word. And I love to hear the stories of the new believers, the new Christians, who go home and they just start tearing through the Bible. And, And they don't even realize that hours go by and they've just read through chapters and chapters and chapters of the word and they're starting to get it and they're understanding it. That doesn't mean, once again, that suddenly they've just become the best Bible scholar ever. Right? But you haven't understanding. The Holy Spirit has given you understanding of the Word of God. If you try to read the Scriptures without being born again, they're a mystery to you. We know in the Word of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, for the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. Neither can he know them. They are spiritually discerned. But he which is spiritual understands, though he is not understood by any. You see, it's God who gives us through the indwelling of the Spirit when we receive that understanding of the Word. In verse 46, Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Verse 49, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, I send the promise of my Father. You see, the Holy Spirit was a promise from God. Promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. You see, there was this promise, this promise of the Spirit that was to come. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I won't leave you comfortless. There is one who will come after me, and it will equip you for the work that I'm calling you to do. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Now here's the implication here. We know that I think it's 10 days after this, they received the Spirit. And it says that they were in the temple praising and blessing God continually, right? And so the implication there is that there was a mighty work of God that happened in the temple as they received the power of the Spirit. And so he leads them out as far as Bethany. And and Jesus ascends. And so it's so cool because this is the beginning, not the end of the work of Jesus. Now as we transition back to the book of Acts, if you want to turn there, Acts chapter 1. It's been said that the book of Acts is how the gospel gets to Rome. Think of the beginning. Think of the very beginning of the word of God in Genesis, the book of beginnings. The tower of Babel. God's people post-flood in their effort to be great. They build a tower to the heavens. They say, let's build a tower to the heavens such that we would be known. If this were to ever happen again, we would be known as a great people. And what does God do? He sees the pride of man. And he comes down and he confuses their language. He spreads them out, scatters them over the earth. Now this is the very beginning or close to it, beginning, following the flood at least. This is the beginning. Man has been spread out, scattered across the earth, speaking different languages, unable to communicate with one another. And if we go then from the beginning of the word of God in Genesis and we go all the way to the end in Revelation, what do we read of but... A number innumerable of different tribes and tongues of many different nations who have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. How do we get from there to there? How do we get from being scattered all over the earth, not understanding anyone, and get to the end when all of a sudden all these tribes and, and people groups are, are together? Now we we in our finite understanding, we look at, we say, Well, we've learned languages and we did this and we did that. But his word had to be shared. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, had to be brought out to the uttermost ends of the earth. And that's what we start to get insight to in the book of Acts. We'll read of the power of the Holy Spirit that comes upon them on the day of Pentecost and the equipping of the Spirit to speak in various tongues. And mind you, it's less the ability to speak languages, because we get so hung up on the ability to speak a different language and to speak in tongues, but rather the power to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? That the equipping of the Holy Spirit came upon them so that they could go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what it was about. And so what we're embarking on here is the continued work of Jesus Christ, working through men to change the world. And so we turn to Acts chapter 1, and we see here at the beginning this refresher that Luke gives us of of where we're at based on how the gospel ended. And we read in chapter 1, verse 1, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach what Luke wrote in the gospel. That was just the beginning. We read it oftentimes as the framework of Jesus and Jesus' life and his ministry, and true, that's, that's what it was, that's what it is. But so often we put bookends on it. The reality is when Jesus ascended, he left him with a great work, and he said that you're not gonna be alone in this work. He says, I'm gonna go and prepare a place for you, and I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit the promise of God the Father, to equip you along the way, to continue to do this work. The Gospels are Jesus in the physical, Acts is Jesus in the spiritual, working in the body, which is his church. That was just the beginning. Until the day, verse 2, in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. 40 days they had with Jesus post resurrection. 40 days! Then he was seen by many. He was seen by many. Do you realize that today? Do you understand that? Jesus appeared. Two people after his resurrection. This isn't just something that we concocted that we said, well, the tomb's empty now, Jesus must be alive, and let's go on and proclaim his name. Some people wanted to say that. Some people wanted to suggest it was some great conspiracy. To the doubters today, those who who feel like, well, I didn't see him, right? Well, because it's 2,000 years later, you didn't see him, right? You're going to see him in that same way. He ascended, okay? But they want to say, well, because of that, there's not sufficient proof. It's not sufficient proof that these eyewitnesses saw him. Well, if you believe that today, then the reality is what you have to understand is you're discounting our entire legal system. Because we continue today to operate based off of eyewitness testimony in the legal system. Now, some people may want to say, well, you know, an eyewitness testimony isn't as good. as Come at it with any angle you want. The reality is we still today accept people that say, I was there, I saw it. We have people at that time who said, I was there, I saw it. Right? numerous people, not just the insiders, not just the ones who are closest to Jesus, but people all over the city. We even have extra biblical texts, texts that are not part of the Bible. They are just simply historical texts that talk about the people that said, hey, I saw Jesus. We saw this man, this teacher risen. It's amazing to me. Outside of the fact, of course, that I know that individuals today have hardened hearts, right? And they just don't want to believe that we're so resistant to believing when we can read accounts of people who said this happened. It was incredible. And why? Because it was some great manipulation. Folks, if you run into people out there, if you're here today and you're sort of, you're a skeptic in that way, and you want to align yourself with the conspiracy theorists that talk about how Christianity is the big great lie and manipulation. Well, then it's the worst manipulation of all time because what have we really to gain from it? Now, yes, there are churches out there. There are supposed teachers that have taken advantage of individuals. There's no doubt about that. I'm not going to deny that here this morning. and That is terrible. But really, in general, to just try and convince a population of people to live their lives in a good way and love one another. Whoa, right? Crazy people. For 40 days, he was seen. And what they did talk about were the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, the Gnostics would tell you that they were talking about super-secret squirrel things, right? we got to figure out what was going on in that room. right? They want us to think that there was something profound that was revealed to the apostles during that time that we now need to make it our aim and our mission to try and comprehend, revealed knowledge that we can supernaturally try and lay hold of at some point. Now I'm not saying that Jesus didn't say something to the apostles at that time that wasn't written within the word of God, but I'm inclined to think that he continued to talk to them about the kingdom of God the same way he had for the three years previously. That was his aim. He wanted to help them to understand what the kingdom of God was all about and what the work that they were going to be called to do, how they would go about accomplishing that. You see, the gospel is simple and we want to try and make it so complex all the time. As Jesus was talking to them about the kingdom of God and the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He continued to give them understanding of scriptures to make sure that they would understand it clearly in order to do what they were going to be asked to do here in the next few verses. For these were Jesus' last words, as we have at the beginning of Acts, the last things that he would say to them, at least in this particular form. We know that later on you know, he would communicate in a couple of different ways, for example, to the Apostle Paul. But this Before Jesus' ascension serves as his last words to his apostles. What would you say if you knew it was the last thing you could say to somebody who you love? What would you or what have you potentially said, knowing it was your last opportunity? I love you. I'm proud of you. You give them some direction. The first thing Jesus tells them is wait, wait. And being assembled together with them, verse 4, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Wait, be patient. What do we say in our flesh when we're told that? We say, oh, come on, right? I don't want to wait. I don't want to be patient. I hate waiting. We live in the number one culture of anti Waiters. We do. We hate it. We hate it. We're so impatient. Stoplights are the worst. You know, and I'm driving down Forest Drive, down to the daybreak office during the week. I'm like, you gotta get the timing's off on these. Somebody's gotta fix this. Right? Yeah, somebody's probably saying, yeah, they are. They are. You know, same thing, right? We convince ourselves everybody else out there is wrong right now. Everybody's slower than me, and I have to wait. And we hate it. No matter what it is, we hate it. Right? We have microwaves. But we're mad because this particular microwave doesn't have the express 30-second button. i got to type in three buttons? I'm supposed to be able to just hit the one, right? Think about it. We hate waiting. But Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends in heaven, he says, wait, 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 waiting. But he says, he says to them, wait. God has a promise for them. This is no doubt what we read in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass in the later days, saith the Lord that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall dream dreams, your old men shall see visions, and upon my servants and my handmaidens shall I pour out my spirit, saith the Lord. And they'll need this. They'll need this to do what they're about to be called to do. And so do we. Now, some translations, your, your Bibles may say, uh, Terry said, wait, Terry, here a little while longer. We see that in the gospel, the gospel of Luke. The Pentecostal movement uh, has tarrying services. Yeah. Now, I'm not trying to, now listen, I know a lot of you come out of different backgrounds, you have different experiences, okay? Uh, I, I'm not trying to, to, to bash anything here. But I know of these things. I know of, the, of these tarrying services where they wait on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're just all going to sit tight and wait for a while. And they have these services where you wait and you wait and you wait until the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, or the, uh, the equipping. And what I'm here to tell you is that's not biblical. Okay, if you see that happening, there, we don't have anything in the word of God that says that this is what you're supposed to do moving forward. That you should have these services where you wait around until the Holy Spirit shows up. Right? It says specifically here, to the disciples wait in Jerusalem? That doesn't say hang out in Columbia a little while. right? Be the, you know, it, it, we don't see that. We don't see it as specific instruction to Christians today to, to take up this practice, but rather this was specific to the disciples because they were waiting for the promise that God had for them to come upon them. But when that happened, that happened. That's it. Now we can have a fresh filling, fresh uh, pouring out of the Spirit on a regular basis. It's something that can happen over and over again, and we'll get into more of that. But this isn't something that we're now still waiting on. It hasn't shown up here yet. Right? That's not, that's, we don't see that in the Word. God still tells us to wait on things. Christians, we need to have patience. We need to give God time to work. Not because God is slow, not because God is a little old these days, doesn't move as fast anymore as he did during the time of Acts. No, it's because his timing is perfect. It's because God operates on his timeline. Do you understand that this right here, outside of the amazing concept of creation and how the, the sun and the moon and the stars all operate at, at very predictable Ways such that man in our limited understanding was able to figure out this 24 hour thing and, and make a watch and everything else. Do you understand that this is irrelevant? It's irrelevant. Try and put this into eternity, try and comprehend that, right? Try and fit a 24 hour day into the backdrop of eternity. It, it suddenly just becomes whatever. Right, we are, we are so limited in our understanding and so tied to this life that, that we think of everything in terms of these chunks of time. God's time is perfect. We need to get a little bit more comfortable waiting on him. Some of us need to learn a little bit of godly patience. I've never found that waiting produced a negative result. Never. Now, some of you may be already thinking about, oh, there was maybe a time where I did this, I did this, and I should have acted sooner. What you did there was procrastinated. I didn't say that waiting was a bad thing. Procrastination is a bad thing. Yes, I've been impacted by procrastination because I knew what I needed to do. And whether I was just like, forget it, I'm not going to do it. Or I convinced myself that, no, I'm going to sit on this for a while. I'm going to pray about this a little bit longer, right? Give me a break. Don't go dragging the Bible into it and try and defend your own procrastination, right? If the Lord has spoken and you know it, and he's telling you you need to do something, you do it. Very simple, right? I'll, I'll do this one because everybody, right? I, I'm going I'm to read the Bible a little more, right? I'm going to commit to that. I'm going to get up early in the morning. I'm going to read the Bible. <sighs> but, you know, I'm just not feeling it today. I'm going to pray about that a little bit more. See where the Lord really wants me to go, you know? No, you're procrastinating. Get in the Word. Go, right? But waiting, true waiting, when you don't have a leading, when you don't have a guiding, when you know you're facing a big decision and you're just not sure what to do about it, wait give it some time. Waiting is biblical. Verse 6, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, my first reaction when I read this is there they go again. Come on, you're supposed to be given insight now, apostles. Why are you asking this question again? Why don't they get it? But in fairness, the topic, as we've already discussed, of the kingdom, the topic of the kingdom of God was what they regularly talked about. So they were still developing their understanding of what this kingdom of God was going to be all about. For the previous 40 days, the word says that they had discussed the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So clearly they were growing in their knowledge, but they still didn't totally get it. And maybe it was partially that they didn't get it, and maybe partially because they were still so focused on what they wanted God to do, what they wanted to see Jesus do, and overturning what was to them a corrupt government that they wanted nothing to do with They wanted to have a physical kingdom established. Then they wanted it so badly. They wanted so badly to see their world changed, and and Jesus had said that it would be. Remember, Jesus tells us that it will be. Jesus says that His kingdom is going to be established. Jesus says that, that that we can see transformation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they didn't quite realize how it would be changed, and that they would be the ones who got to get that process started. When Jesus was crucified, remember the disappointment? On the road to Emmaus, Jesus appears to them as a stranger. Essentially, what's wrong? I paraphrase. Right? What's wrong? Why are you so sad? Well, who are you? Do you not know what's happening? Do you not want to know what has been going on? Jesus, you know, under the covering of a stranger, they don't know who he is. Tell me more. Right? And I can't imagine how it must have felt to them at that time. That it was, it was such a letdown. There was so much promise, so much hope, so much potential. This godly man, Jesus, we thought for sure that this is how it was all going to go down. They were so ready for Jesus to fulfill their hopes and their dreams. And they just felt like it all had fallen apart. That same hope is built into us, folks. We all love a story of a hero. We're all looking for a hero. Some of you may love the, the superhero movies, and some of you may despise them, but you turn to something that gives you the exact same thing. This hope, this individual that can accomplish something for you that you want so desperately. We all want the corrupt system overturned still today. It doesn't matter if it was 2,000 years ago or today. We all still think that the man's trying to keep us down, right? We do. We think about the government, and we think of, we want all of those same things today. The world is still crying out. There are unsaved people who are still looking for that hope somewhere. And even for Christians in our misunderstandings of the Word of God and who Jesus is, we still look to Him and are sometimes let down in our own flesh, because we expect for God to take care of this immediately. or expect for him to take care of this immediately. Instead of being willing to just wait and, and allow the Holy Spirit to give us full understanding of who He is. And like the disciples walking along the road to Emmaus, the hero is right before our very eyes. But the way in which he is saving us, it it may not be what we had planned. The way your life is going today may not be exactly as you had planned, but you can still surrender that to Jesus Christ. His kingdom will be restored, but it will happen in his time, not ours. And he says to us in verse 7, and he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. You see, it's not for us to know, plain and simple. Just like sometimes we need to wait and we don't want to. Sometimes we want all the information and we can't have it. Deal with it, right? So we, there's no other explanation other than I gotta wait, I gotta be patient, and I gotta trust the Lord. Verse eight: But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Christians, we desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit today. We have it. We have it. It's available. The Greek preposition here is epi, E-P-I. It's used to signify a new relationship, a new relationship that they were to have with the Holy Spirit. John 14, as Jesus is there promising to send the Holy Spirit, he said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you and I will pray the Father and he will send you another comforter, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not. Neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and he shall be in you. It's John chapter 14, verse 17 through 18. Do you understand that, Christian? That you know him because he dwells in you. This power of the Spirit, the world cannot know it. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can't know the Spirit in this way. He is with you. He wants to dwell in you. And Jesus says you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We read in John 7, on the last day, the great day of the feast, when Jesus stood there on the temple mount and cried to the people, If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And he who drinks of the water that I give, out of his innermost being there will gush torrents of living water. John said, This spoke Jesus of the Spirit, which was not yet given, which they who believe on him should receive. John seven thirty seven through 39. What did he say of the Spirit? That it would be like a torrent of living water flowing out. We can have a working of the Spirit such that it overflows from within us. So there's a threefold relationship here. He is with you prior to your conversion. If you're here today and you are a Christian, you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he was with you prior to, he is the one that was drawing you to himself. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but suddenly you're starting to get a little uncomfortable in your seat, it's the Spirit drawing you to himself. We can't in and of ourselves, in our own flesh, think that suddenly we need something good. right? We've got to have the drawing of the Spirit that helps us to understand, I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. And so he's drawing you to him. And then he's the one that causes you to realize that you're a sinner. He's the one that points out that Jesus Christ is the answer. He helps you to understand and to see. And then you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And like we read at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we start to have our eyes open and and understanding to the things of God and to the Word of God. That indwelling of the Spirit happens at conversion. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19-20, through Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And then there's a third, a third relationship, and that's the empowering, the equipping of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see here as we start to come to a close. I'd ask, power, right? Power for what? Power to overthrow the government That's what the apostles still wanted. They wanted some element of that. How can we still bring this thing through to completion, Jesus? we got to figure this out still. And we want that same power. We want power. We often want power that's not intended. The power we receive, though it comes with many gifts, by the way, is not power simply to speak in tongues or interpret them. It's not simply power to understand the will of God. It's not simply power to remain faithful in our walk with Him. These gifts accompany the power that we're given. I'm not saying that, you know, at Calvary Chapel we do believe in the gifts of the spirit, but the gifts that accompany this power is ultimately the greatest power which is to equip us to be witnesses. To be witnesses. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's the dunamis power. In the original Greek dunamis, which we get dynamic from, it's a dynamic power. It's also the word that we get dynamite from. Dynamite is explosive, is it not? That is the power of the Holy Spirit. When we're equipped by it, it's powerful, it's incredible, it's dynamic. But far too much emphasis has been placed over the years on the Spirit, and the gifts of the Spirit, in such a way that's unhealthy. unhealthy. Listen, and, and this is the one we pick on all the time because, because when I say it, when I say the gift of speaking in tongues, some of you in here are like, oh, oh, that's bad, right? And some of you are, yeah, hallelujah, right? And as typically we find ourselves at Calvary Chapel, some here, some here, we're right here, right? We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe that they are appropriate still today. But when exercised with balance, right, in accordance with His will, You don't have to speak in tongues, okay? I'm not here to tell you today that you have to speak in tongues. And that if someone tells you that that is, in fact, a measure of how great your faith is, well, they're wrong. We don't see that in the Word. It's not in the Bible. If that's the belief that you have, then show me. Afterwards, come and show me, right? At Calvary Chapel, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit, but we, again, believe in balance. And there's a purpose for the indwelling of the Spirit, and that's to be a witness, you see, one of the things we commonly say about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit would never want to interrupt itself. So when someone is trying to, in their minds, express a gift of the Holy Spirit, but it's disruptive, well, then that's a problem to me. Right? Because God wouldn't want that to happen. Right? He wouldn't want to interrupt himself. The power we're talking about here was the power to be a witness. Where? First in Jerusalem. What was Jerusalem to them? Home. Home. To be a witness at home. It's the toughest place. It's the toughest place to be a witness. And from there, the world, all over. What's a witness? It's one who will tell of who Jesus is, to share the good news. The original language here is martis, from which we get martyr. Power, power, the equipping of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit to be martyrs for the cause of Christ, to be willing to give all of yourself, including your life, to share the good news. There's incredible weight to that, Christian, but you're not alone because it's the empowering of the Spirit in your life that does that work. Christian, do you need a fresh filling of the Spirit today? As I mentioned before, it's not this equipping is not a, a one-time thing, but rather we can seek continually to be refreshed and renewed by His Spirit. Do you need this today, or do you want to go it alone? I've got this. I can handle this. That's what we tell God often in our actions. Are you willing to receive it today? Or do you want to try it your way? Now, first and foremost, you must be saved, receiving the indwelling of the Spirit for salvation, and then you can be equipped and empowered by the Spirit to walk in Him. I would urge you, those of you here where the Spirit's already at work drawing you, those who know Jesus and you've been operating in your own flesh, surrender. This isn't a gift of the Spirit service right now. What I'm talking about is you know you need, an endo- you need a fresh pouring out of the Spirit on your life. Allow the Lord to do that awesome work today. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly eBulletin so that you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For any more information or if you have any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at CalvaryChapelNortheast.com.